0: Lord Jesus, our shepherd, we pray that we would hear your voice and follow you. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. I want to talk a little about two things this morning. The role of the shepherd in Jesus' ministry as it was prophesied by the prophets before his coming and also i want to give you an update on the easter bunny scholars about about 3 years ago i real i came to the conclusion that the easiest way to get for a theologian to get published in the media was to give a new interpretation of jesus right before easter time and at that time i told you about the the what was it, the leading theologian from the state of Oregon who said that we should have the faith of Jesus, not faith in Jesus. I would love to have the faith of Jesus in his father, but I still have faith in Jesus that he actually accomplished something. And then the next year it was Jesus and his evil twin, the Christ, who claimed that he appeared after Jesus died and claimed to be Jesus' and so on. That was probably about the bottom of the barrel. I haven't heard any more of that one. So, so too why bother? Well, I think there's two reasons. One is, there is this constant drip, 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 that Jesus was not so unique after all, if he really existed. And I think, rather than just dismiss all that, It's good to have some idea what it is, so if someone else who perhaps is not so firmly convinced about Jesus' resurrection brings it up, we can do better than just uh, poo-poo it. We can actually smile and take it in and say, yes, that's all been checked out. Another reason is, by contrast, a couple of these that I want to tell you about this morning do illuminate aspects of Jesus' public ministry. And between that and the shepherding, I think we will get some insight into what Jesus was doing in his public ministry. So the first one, my candidate this year, was the Gospel of Jesus' wife. In 2012, a piece of papyrus about that big, as big as the brown spot on the paper was found, which included one line which said, Jesus said, my wife dot 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 and this was delivered by a dealer in antiquities to a to a, a woman theology scholar at Harvard who and a colleague immediately publicized it even though this particular dealer had published had supplied forgeries before and it didn't take long before scholars finally quickly determined that it was a forgery. So I'm surprised at two things. I'm still surprised at the amount of media attention something with such a flimsy basis actually got. I'm even more surprised by the fact that there are still scholars today who can tell 4th century Coptic dialect from 7th century Coptic dialect and could determine that the papyrus was from the 7th or 8th century but the forgeries mimicked the 3rd and 4th century. It's just the Bible's are the most studied pieces of literature ever. Okay, so that one doesn't take long. <laughs> Oops. Well, then we have, some years ago, Rabbi Jesus, an intimate biography by an Anglican priest named Bruce Chilton. Rabbi Jesus, the wandering mystic um, it's got some good background material. This is another common thing. It really loads you up with some good ma- background material on certain things to establish credibility. And then there's something that the scholar doesn't like. He just throws it out and replaces it with what he thinks it must have been. Um, the resurrection was basically an exercise. Jesus taught his followers transcendental meditation, group meditation. They had these wonderful mystical experiences. Well, the only point I want to make here is, was Jesus formerly a rabbi? So we've heard, yes, there were lots of traveling rabbis at the, time, at the time who went around teaching. Some of them even claimed to work, do marvelous works. Well, as far as we can tell, that's not true. Rabbis didn't travel around. Rabbis set up school. Students came to the rabbi the rabbi did not call disciples. So for Jesus to call disciples was unique. And it was also a very bold statement on his part that he wasn't just there to pass on tradition. He was doing something different. Now, Jesus called everyone to repent and believe that the kingdom of God was at hand, but he called specific people to walk with him, to literally follow him as he traveled around. Rabbis didn't do that. We do know that Jesus started teaching at the age of 30, which is when a man could become a rabbi. But he also did something very unique. He proclaimed a mission. He proclaimed that the kingdom of God was at hand, starting with him. So we're going to deposit that one also. Now, this last year, a book came out called Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth by an Iranian-American scholar named Reza Aslan, 2013. He is a professor of creative writing at University of California, Riverside, which might be appropriate. <laughs> so he claims that he first he read the Gospels, became a follower of Jesus, then did further study and found out that the Gospels had the biography kind of wrong and he had figured out that Jesus really was a zealot. Now, the zealots were resistance fighters for the kingdom of God. They wanted to help drive the Romans out. They were active at Jesus' time. A number of them started little revolts and got crucified for their trouble. After Jesus' time, it got even worse. There were the Sicarii, which is Latin for the assassins. There were zealots who assassinated Roman officials and who assassinated Jews who did business with Romans. Um, Jesus, in his instructions to his followers, set up deliberate contrasts to the zealots, turning the other cheek. No zealot would do that. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Now, nope. The kingdom is not of this world. So he made it very clear. When he sent his followers, his apostles, ahead of him to go to different towns and proclaim the, king, the coming of the kingdom, he sent them with no staff, which means no weapon, no shoes, which means they weren't going to be running very far very fast, no money. Now, we know at other times they took money, they took supplies, like if they traveled to Jerusalem for a feast. But when they were out on mission to proclaim the coming of the kingdom, they did not take money. Instead, they went to a village, announced peace, proclaimed the kingdom, and this is part of Jesus' sign of what the kingdom is to be like. If they were received, people gave them their supper and a place to sleep. In the kingdom of God, when it's fully realized, you don't need money. Now, Jesus also taught his disciples to pray. The Lord's Prayer is actually a disciple's prayer, praying for the kingdom to come as they were about to go out for the day to preach it, praying for their daily bread, that someone would hear the message and provide them with that bread. Otherwise, it could be a rough day. So Jesus in no way was comparable to the zealots. Okay, another easy one. So what's more common now, I think it's becoming the trend, is Jesus, the virtually unknown. So I read an article in a magazine called The Skeptic, which is put out by a secular humanist uh, about a few weeks ago. They finally came to the conclusion, as the authors did, that, well, Jesus did exist. There's evidence enough of that. But there's so little known about him that he's irrelevant. Not quite that extreme. We had a National Geographic issue, which you may have seen in stores or elsewhere Jesus and the Apostles. They also conclude that we really don't know very much about Jesus. They don't go as far as the skeptics. And then, to add to the confusion or the publicity or whatever, they throw in an article about the Judas Gospel. So it's popular to say that there there were a lot of Gospels. There's the four we know about. There's the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Judas, and I think there were a couple of others who were given that name. Well, it takes about 15 minutes, if you look at some of these, to tell that these are basically different from the four Gospels that we read. For one thing, most of them were written a couple hundred years later. Uh, The other is that only the four Gospels that we have were ever used in the congregation of the early Christians on Sunday for scripture reading. None of the others were ever used, were ever considered for inclusion in the canon. It's also claimed that there were lots of wonder workers at the time of Jesus. That's not true either. There were some. There were two or three that there's historical evidence that did some rather marvelous signs, but there weren't that many. And, um, oh, that's another. Some of the zealots claim that if their followers would follow them out into the desert, they would see some kind of wonderful sign take place, confirming their authority. Which is interesting then to recall that one of Jesus' temptations in the desert was that he was not going to throw himself off the Temple Mount or any other such spectacular thing. Once again, not like some of the, we could call them revolutionary zealots at the time. By contrast, if you want to know... Oh, one other thing. So it's curious to me that National Geographic article says we don't really know very much about Jesus, and the skeptic says we know virtually nothing about Jesus, and yet the rabbi Jesus and the Muslim scholar find enough stuff to reconstruct the whole story. So you can't have it both ways. If you want to know sort of, well, what, if you approach it as a historian, what can we actually know about Jesus, giving the Gospels their proper historical value, not taking them necessarily as inspired revelations? Read Killing Jesus by Bill O'Reilly. It's, uh, he approaches, he says he's approaching it as a historian, and I think he does a very good job at that. It's curious, interesting to see what things he relies on, which Bibles, which Gospels he follows, which ones he doesn't as much. So from a purely historical point of view, I think you could learn a lot from that book. Um, so O'Reilly was asked by an email in this program, what did, how did writing the book Killing Jesus affect you? His answer was, I, I know that I put my faith in the right person. So there's the same conclusion for all of these. First of all, there was an excellent book review in the Wall Street Journal about the Muslim book by the Muslim author. He says, whenever anybody starts out to write a book about the real Jesus, they always find what they're looking for. If they're looking for a teacher, they find a teacher. If they're looking for a revolutionary, they find a revolutionary. If they're looking for someone who had compassion and was able to inspire people, that's what they find. They always find what they're looking for. In due fairness to the Muslim author Aslan, I would like to mention that he does advocate religious freedom, religious liberty and chastises countries like Iran who do not grant it. The same conclusion applies, as I said. None of these approaches can explain the rise of Christianity. If Jesus was any of these things which these people say, how did we get here? How did Christianity spread like wildfire without military power, without much money, and basically took over the, the Roman Empire? So the faithful churches live, the others die. Now I would like to So we'll move on to Jesus the shepherd. There is a shepherd theme in the Old Testament prophets after the exile, after the Jews were dispersed, the temple was destroyed, and the prophets started teaching a different theme. The Lord is going to gather the sheep of Israel back like a shepherd gathers his sheep because God's name was dishonored by the unfaithfulness of the Jewish people. And their their nation was destroyed. They're carried into captivity. And so obviously the Babylonian gods and the Persian gods were stronger than the God of the Hebrews. His name is dishonored, and for the sake of his name, he will restore Israel. Then all the nations will come. Isaiah 11 says, The Lord will gather the outcasts of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Jeremiah 23, 7 and 8. So then the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt, but they will say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the descendants of Israel up out of the land of the north and all the countries where he had banished them. Then they will live in their own land. So this... Regathering of the people of Israel will almost take the place of the exodus as a landmark in their history. Ezekiel hears the same theme and it eventually became part of everyday Jewish prayer language. Psalm 147 is a good example. The Lord rebuilds Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts. So you can see why people who study the prophets got pretty excited when the state of Israel was established in 1947. And Jews from Europe, from Russia, from Africa, Ethiopia, and from Iran and Iraq have moved either freely or because they were driven out back to the state of Israel. Now once again, with, with prophecy, it's very hard to build timetables. All we can say is that something is going on. This has been prophesied. It will eventually reach fulfillment if God does not keep his promises to the nation of Israel made by the prophets. Why would we think he would keep his promises made to us? It all goes together. Now, when Jesus began his public ministry and announced that the reign of God is here, he made visible signs that this was happening And this is why he started uh, with the lost sheep of Israel. He's not only saying the kingdom of God is here with me, he also says I'm going to go around and start gathering the lost sheep. He went to Galilean cities and towns to proclaim the kingdom and to Jerusalem eventually. But the scriptures never say that he entered a Gentile city or a Samaritan city, to proclaim the kingdom of God. He went, it says, in the vicinity of some of these towns and cities, but never went into them. And when the woman approached him near the city of Tyre to have her daughter healed, he made the statement about the children's bread, and I've only been sent to the lost children of Israel. So before the kingdom of God could become a reality, the lost sheep of Israel had to be gathered called back, and Jesus was doing this in his ministry throughout Galilee and Judea. Now in our reading from Acts, um, after the resurrection of Jesus and after the descent of the Holy Spirit, we see another picture of the realization of the reign of God, not just in Jesus now, but in the body of Christ. The Christian community, after Pentecost, manifested the nature of the kingdom of God. And I'd like to look at that uh, section from Acts briefly. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. But don't forget, they had no epistles and gospels yet. They had the twelve apostles who had walked with Jesus for three years And these thousands of new believers from the day of Pentecost and after had to be instructed. So the apostles would undoubtedly go to different homes and different gatherings and tell them what they had learned, what Jesus had said, what Jesus had done. And we still do that. We have it from the scriptures now. Fellowship, breaking of bread, which would be celebrating the Eucharist, and prayer. Awe came upon every soul. Signs and wonders were part of that community. Let me get, come back to that in a moment. But also the sharing of possessions. So in the kingdom of God, when it's finally realized, and we get glimpses of it here through the power of the Holy Spirit, there will be this sharing um, from each according to his ability, to each according to his need, Some people have tried to see a Christian communism in this. I would prefer to call it a Christian communalism. There is a unity of spirit. There is a love of neighbor as yourself. And Peter makes it very clear that this donation of property and money was freely given. And notice also it's not based on equality. Equality is an invitation to envy and to covetousness, which is forbidden us. It's based on need. I see my neighbor in need. I help him. And even with that, as we know, they soon had complaints. And one group who were probably Jewish converts or Jews from outside Jerusalem felt they were being slighted, so they started looking at equality instead of need and complained that the widows in their community were not being cared for as well So Peter and the church had to appoint seven deacons to carry this out. So there were glimpses, there was a manifestation of the power of God, of what the kingdom of God would be like, but still not perfect, not completed. And the signs and wonders also continue to this day. About six months ago, I heard the testimony of a man who grew up in a very troubled family, and when he gave his life to Christ, he was addicted to methamphetamines and alcohol. He was instantly delivered from his addiction to methamphetamines, which is one of the most addictive substances known, but not the alcohol. He says that the Lord wanted him to learn discipline, to learn to order his life, to learn to work with his brothers be accountable to them to obtain the victory over alcohol, which he, he did. Uh, next Saturday, I'm going to hear the story of a compulsive gambler who robbed a bank where his wife worked. She almost lost her job, and she did divorce him. But after he was uh, sent to prison, came to the Lord, was since released, his wife and he; their marriage has been restored, and one of the banks that he robbed gave him his first loan to start a business to supply work for ex-cons. If you're interested, let me know. I'll, I'll share you the time and the details. I also expect to hear a report from a friend of mine on a medical mission to Ethiopia, which he was just on. Uh, sponsored by Jewish Voice, which I'm pretty sure is a Messianic Jewish organization. It was obviously Christian overall. 6,000 people came to this clinic in Ethiopia for medical treatment. There was also a prayer tent, and 1,500 people also visited the tent for prayer. And there were approximately 200 healings documented by the medical personnel there, Two deaf people received their hearing. A man with detached retina whom the doctor could not help received his sight. A woman with a withered arm was was restored. And hundreds of these people, he said both Muslims, uh, Orthodox Christians, probably Coptic, right, and Jews, accepted Jesus during this time. So the nucleus of the community that we still see in Acts still continues to this day, despite its faults and failings. I'm reminded of what St. Augustine said. Um, St. Augustine wrote a little book called Retractions Toward the End of His Life, in which he admitted he'd made some mistakes in some of his earlier opinions. And one of them was that miracles had ceased. The age of miracles has passed. Until one Sunday morning, right in the middle of the service, two people who obviously weren't following their bulletins, were healed. A brother and a sister crippled. And so he had to admit that, yes, miracles still do occur. So we believe in a real Jesus who performed mighty works in his own life, who rose from the dead, is still living in his church today, still performing mighty works and changing people's lives. He is my Lord and he is my God. Now, there are some applications from all this, I believe. First of all, God's kingdom is not just spiritual. It is going to involve the whole earth, all of creation. The resurrection of the body is part of our creed. Jesus is shepherding his people into a flock, into a body, into a living temple on this earth. It's not just about me and God. So the whole world can see how these Christians love one another for the glory of God and ask why. So wherever you are, the kingdom of God can be realized. You can manifest it. You can make it real. But then also, secondly, you can bring dishonor to the name of Christ, just as the unfaithfulness of the Jewish nation brought dishonor to the name of God. We are not perfect, right? We are just forgiven. We are not just forgiven. We are also born again, and the life of God in us must become manifest, must be a light to the world. Born again, filled with the Spirit, and if someone can say, oh, really, I can't tell it. That is going to bring dishonor to the name of Jesus. There's a popular saying, if being a follower of Jesus were a crime, is there enough evidence to convict you? Especially when you're speaking as a Christian. If you're speaking with someone who either ridicules or attacks our faith, how you answer is so important to doubters and especially, especially On the internet, there is awful stuff on the internet supposedly from Christians rebutting non-believers. And this brings dishonor to the name of Jesus. So we have to be careful how we speak to others, even even or maybe especially when they disagree with us. We can't fake it. It's got to be a part of us. It has to come from our heart and mind. And how do we get there? I keep... Coming back to the same things. Fill your mind with the word of God. Practice what you learn and pray. And then in the times of perhaps unexpectedly when you're faced with a situation like that, the spirit will give you words to say. And finally, be devoted to Jesus' flock. Be devoted to one another. Share your daily bread with believers and non-believers alike make the reign of God visible in our lives, in our religious church community, and also in our larger community.